Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, and um, last week we talked about hypocrisy and about how there is no room for hypocrisy in the church. So who we are on the outside should reflect who we are on the inside, and likewise, who we are on the inside should reflect who we are on the outside. There shouldn't be any difference between the two. We're continuing this same idea of hypocrisy today by talking about, um, by addressing really a major, major issue in Christianity. We're talking about prayer and fasting. Here's what Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. So read along with me. In fact, let's do this. Would you please stand as we read um, God's Word together? And I'm going to read starting in verse 5 all the way up through verse 15 together. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Let's read this out loud together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. I'm going to continue reading in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And you you may be seated. In those first few verses there, specifically verses 5 through 8, what we find is that the hypocrites like to practice their prayer in the very public places. So the synagogues and the street corners, that's the two places listed there. Every single afternoon, the trumpets would sound and and, um, the afternoon sacrifices would commence there in the temple. And when the trumpets sounded, what was supposed to take place is that all of the devout Hebrews, the devout Jews, would turn and face the temple and they would pray right there wherever they were at. So what would happen then is that um, people would, uh, would... go to wherever they could, to where they could face the temple. And even if they're in a room, they're they're facing the temple, the direction of the temple. The problem is that there were some people who would make sure that they would be on the corner of the street when that trumpet sounded, when they were supposed to pray in the direction of the temple. And then they would pray these really, really loud, obnoxious prayers, making sure that everybody heard what they had to say. Luke chapter 18, verses 11 through 12, this verse is going to be on the screen for you, but we find an example of this person. Jesus says this. He says, the Pharisee standing by himself, this is a story that that Jesus is observing, okay? The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And if you continue reading the story, what you find is that Jesus honors that tax collector that the Pharisee just put down in his prayer. This is the kind of prayer that is prayed on the street corner. It's prideful. Like I said before, it's obnoxious. 
It's the hypocrite who cares more about what man thinks about him and the words that he's saying than about what God thinks. Now, the other place that's listed here is the synagogue. And, and um, synagogue prayer would be really, really similar to what we do here on Sunday mornings where there's a public time of prayer in which there's typically one person leading and then there's others who are, who are praying along with that one person, but they're doing so more quietly. Um, and, and a lot of times it's easy for that person standing up to get really preachy with their prayers. It's like these, the, Jesus uses the phrase, empty phrases. Praying so that people can hear the, the big words that they use. And what Jesus is doing here is he's not condemning the public prayer. He's condemning the heart attitude of the prayer. Not the act of public prayer, the heart attitude of the prayer. In fact, you look ahead at the book of Acts, and what you see is that, that there is this humble prayer that's given in public multiple times. That's the heart of prayer that the person is supposed to have. What Jesus is emphasizing here is that prayer is a conversation between a Christian and God. It's a conversation between a Christian and God. So get rid of anything that's going to distract you from focusing on the conversation that you're having with God. If praying in public is a temptation for you to care more about using the right words in front of other people than talking to God, then don't do it. Go into your closet where it realigns your prayer priorities. There's a whole lot more that we could say here about how not to pray, but I want to spend time talking about how Jesus shows his disciples to pray. Okay, so let's, let's, um, let's shift our thinking here, okay? So we're going from how Jesus talks about not praying and then now how to pray. There's a man who went to the doctor and the doctor said, um, well, where does it hurt? The man said, it hurts all over. The doctor said, well, show me. The doctor said, touch your head. So the man touched his head. He said, oh. The doctor said, touch your shoulder. And the man said, oh. The man said, or the doctor said, touch your elbow. And the, the man touched his elbow. And oh, it hurts so bad. The doctor looked at him and said, you are an idiot. You got a dislocated finger. You know, sometimes it seems like a whole, there's a whole lot of things that are wrong when it's actually just one thing that's wrong. Your home life is a wreck. Your marriage is on the rocks. Your work is more than you can handle. You get a bad health report. All of these are examples of things that go wrong. And also, these are the examples of, of things that, that call us, that pull us into prayer. These are times that people pray when we get bad news or when something hard is going on. And oftentimes Christians think that a whole lot is wrong with life when in reality the only thing that's truly wrong is that we won't pray. Lack of prayer is like that dislocated finger. That's the issue. That's the point where the rubber meets the road. And this whole passage is about not being a hypocrite. So what does it look like to pray genuine, humble, heartfelt prayers? Jesus says in verse 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he continues by saying, 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, in your handout today, there's an there's opportunity for you to take some notes. And I want you to pull that out and follow along as we work through this. I'm going to kind of give you a word or a little short phrase for each section here. And what we find first is the basis of prayer. The basis of prayer is our Father. The basis of prayer is our Father. Now, in the Old Testament... The word Father is only used to refer to God 14 times. That's it. In the whole Old Testament, the word Father is only used to refer to God 14 times. And every single time it's used, it's used to describe the corporate nation of Israel as a whole. Our Father, the nation of Israel's Father. And it's not until Jesus gets here in the Sermon on the Mount that we find for the first time in all of the Bible in which the, our Father turns into an individualistic, very personal call. My Father, Jesus says. When you pray, our Father, it's my Father, your Father. The Pharisees hated him for it. He got in a lot of trouble because he referred to God as his Father and that he was the Son of God. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't given to teach non-believers. Jesus gathers his disciples all around to teach them, the believers, So this tells us that anyone who's a disciple of Jesus can join with Jesus in calling God Father. Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, we find these words. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, Paul says, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, when, father, when, when Jesus uses this word Father in the Lord's Prayer, he's, he's using the word Abba. We don't have a good interpretation in the English language for the word Abba. And the closest that we can come, and these are, these are my words here, there's all kinds of phrases out there, but the closest I believe that we can come is just simply saying, Dearest Dad. Dearest Dad. How often do we approach our prayer with the understanding that we're talking to Dearest Dad. I tell my four sons often that out of the seven and a half billion people on this planet, they are the only four people who can call me daddy. If you're one of God's children, you can call him daddy. Next, adoration. Hallowed be your name. The word hallowed means sanctified, um, made holy. It's the idea of of being set apart. You, You are different. And when you couple it with your name here, hallowed be your name, Jesus is saying, God, you are holy. Who you are, your very being is holy. It is set apart. Hallowed is a term of worship. In our, in our worship, we often sing about the holiness of our God, how he's set apart, how great he is. And when we think about how our Abba is being hallowed, we think about this contrast. It's a contrast between earth and heaven, uh, sin and holiness, mankind and God. God, you are set apart. Hallowed be your name. We worship you because you are holy. We worship you because you are hallowed. Abba, holy is your name. Number three, we go into submission. Submission, thy kingdom, thy will. Thy kingdom, thy will. It's, it's, 
we all know we live in this sin-cursed world, and every time we turn around, we see evil of some kind. Heartache is around every single corner. There's, there's the grief of lost loved ones that, that plague mankind. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. If you remember way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 31, we find God looking at his creation, everything that he's created, and what does he say? It is very, try that again, it's very good. That means it's perfect. There is nothing wrong with it. There's no sin. There's no corruption. There's no heartache. There's no sickness. There's no any of that stuff. But as soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed God and brought sin into the world, then all of a sudden, God who is holy is no less holy, but his, his, his creation is corrupt. It's defiled. It's dirty. And when is it going to be perfect again? It's not right now. When is it going to be perfect again? One day when God makes all things new, it will be perfect again. So when we see this prayer of, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, we know that God's kingdom is perfect. We know that his will is perfect. So our prayer is, God, we want you and all of your perfection and your holiness. We want it to be transparent here on this earth. It's a cry of, Father, I want you. I want what is your perfect will for me as an, as an individual. I want your will for this earth. It's both a plea and a surrender at the same time. God, I want you, and I surrender to you. That's this cry of thy kingdom, thy will. And then there's petition, number four, petition. Give us this day our daily bread. That's what we find here in the Lord's Prayer. You know, I think about this, and I think about how God provided for the nation of Israel. Right after they came out of their bondage to Egypt, they are on their way to the promised land. And what's the first thing that you think of every single day? What's the first thing you're going to think of when you leave this room in a little while? And maybe you're thinking of it right now. I'm hungry. I want some food. Maybe you're even thinking ahead to what your food's going to be here in a little while. Well, the, the, the uh, nation of Israel comes out of Egypt and they're thinking about their bellies and they don't have anything to eat. And what does God do? He provides for them. He provides that bread and the meat in the wilderness. When we pray this prayer of give us this day our daily bread, what we're praying is, God, our bodies, our physical lives need nourishment. We need health. And when we pray this prayer of give us this day our daily bread, what we're doing is we're asking God to provide for our most basic necessities. And listen, this is the same God who a little bit later on, when Paul was writing to the church at Philippi, he said, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He's the God who provides. So we go to him with petition. Number five, confession. Forgive us. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We talked about already how sin separates us from God. And when it comes to repenting of those sins, it cannot get much simpler than, the, than these words. Just simply, forgive me of my sin. God, please forgive me of my sin. When was the last time you took time to genuinely repent of sin? And I'm not just saying, kind of like my kids do sometimes, They've offended one of their brothers or they've hurt one of their brothers and it's a, I'm sorry, and they move on. 
I'm not talking about that kind of I'm sorry. I'm talking about a grieving of your sin, a genuine repentance, mourning the fact that you flew in the face of God's holiness with your sin. When was the last time that was the kind of repentance that you went through? Where you took a hard look at yourself, kind of like David did. He took a hard look at himself and he realized just how dirty and sinful he was. And he said, oh God, I'm so sorry. This is the kind of prayer that we lift up here. It's not a simple, oh, just forgive me of my sins. No, it's a, God, I'm so sorry for my sin And then after grieving it, we trust God to follow through with his word where he says that he's going to be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When's the last time you did that? If you haven't done it in a while, it's, it's important for us to keep a short account with God. Go search your heart. But then once we've been forgiven by God, then we're to do the same thing to the people who are around us. Robert Louis Stevenson, um, in writing his picturesque Notes of Edinburgh, tells a story of two unmarried sisters who shared a single room. They lived together. And as people who are apt to do, who live in close quarters, the sisters had a falling out. And um, in his words, it was on some point of controversial divinity. In other words, they disagreed over some aspect of theology, Okay. The controversy was so bitter that they never spoke to one another again. They lived together in the same small room, but they never spoke to each other again. They drew a chalk line across the floor to separate their two domains, and it actually divided the doorway going into the room, and it divided the fireplace so that each could go in and out, and they could do their cooking in there in the fireplace without stepping into the territory of the other person. For years... They coexisted in hateful silence. Their meals, their family visitors were continually exposed to the other person's unfriendly silence. At night, each one of them would go to bed listening to the heavy breathing of her enemy. Thus, the two sisters continued the rest of their miserable lives. They're supposed to be believers, supposed to be believers. In fact, they went to church every single Sunday. And as the custom in many, many times in the churches of the day, they would recite the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things that they would say in the Lord's Prayer are these words, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. But there is no way they could have said those words and meant them. Because they were living with a grudge and not forgiving the other person. You see, folks, Jesus makes it really, really clear here in his teaching right after the Lord's Prayer. He makes it really clear that just as God has forgiven us, to the level and to the degree that God has forgiven us. And what has he forgiven us of? Everything. That is the same level and that is the same degree to which we go and forgive other people. Lastly, in this prayer, we see the word aspiration, lead us. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the aspiration that we find here is to stay holy, to be pure, to stay away from sin. The Puritans used to pray this prayer. They would say, 
My soul longs for communion with thee, God, for mortification of indwelling corruption. In other words, for the killing of my sin, especially spiritual pride. How precious it is to have a tender sense and clear apprehension of the mystery of godliness, of true holiness. Folks, that's the heart of Jesus as he's teaching here. It is holiness. Now, God never, ever tempts us with evil. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 13 makes it clear that that is not at all what Jesus is saying here. This is a prayer. Get this. This is a prayer asking God to preserve us from sin and evil. God, keep me from anything that would draw me away from you. Keep me away from anything at all that would take my focus off of you. That's the prayer here. And then Jesus caps off this whole conversation about hypocrisy by saying this about fasting. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The natural thing in Jesus' day was when somebody was fasting that they would go out and they would make it clear that they were fasting. They would dishevel their hair and they would, they would be dirty and, and they, would, they would walk around praying these open prayers, making it clear that they were fasting. But Jesus says, no, no, no. All you're looking for in that is the praise of man. So go into your house, clean yourself up, and let God see your heart. Don't worry about other people. Earlier I talked about how so often we don't pray until we have to. Something goes wrong. Something, something happens and we resort then to prayer. But prayer is supposed to be and, and, and can be so much more than that. How many of us want to control our future? In fact, we live much of our lives trying to figure out how to control our future. The reality is that people don't choose their future, they choose the habits that shape their future. People don't choose their future, they choose the habits that shape their future. If you knew that the habits that you put in place right now will shape your future, then what habits will you pick up? Can I tell you that at the very top of your list should be prayer, the habit of prayer. The consistent prayer of any Christian will change your life. You know, it's not going to take away all the bad things that happen in this world, but it's going to connect your heart with God's heart so when bad things do happen, you've got a rock to hold on to in the middle of the storm. Samuel Chadwick wrote a book entitled The Path of Prayer, and I, I, I think it was a few years ago I gave you this quote. But Here's what he says, the one concern of the devil <clears throat> is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Prayer turns mortals, ordinary mortals, into men of power. It brings power, it brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. You know, we pray for God to use us to do this mighty work around us, but it's not going to happen apart from prayer. 
And when we look at this prayer here in, in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, we learn from the teaching of Jesus. We learn how we should pray. It's a model for us to use to pray so we're not stuck with the dinnertime prayers. And y'all, I'm so guilty of this. All the time, I get stuck in these routine prayers. But prayer is meant to be anything but routine and ordinary. This morning, what I want to do as we, as we wrap up our time here is I want to take a prayer that I have written based off of the Lord's Prayer. And I want, to, I want for us, to, I'm going to pray it publicly and, and you affirm and pray along with me as I pray. But I want to ask that you just bow your heads and close your eyes. There's no one moving around when I pray this. Oh, Father in heaven, Abba, the one I long to be close to, the one who is seated in heaven at the, on the highest throne in the universe, hallowed be your name. Who you are and your character and nature are so much greater than I am, and I'm not even worthy to be mentioned in the same sentence as you. You are holy. You are set apart. You alone are worthy of all the praise that I can give you. There is none like you, God. There is no other being in this universe that deserves any praise compared to you. Oh, God, you are holy. But with this knowledge of your holiness comes an understanding that I am not holy, and I am only righteous because you choose to make me righteous. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. More than anything else, I want what you want. And because I know your desire is to draw all men to yourself, that's what I want too. I want your perfect will to be done in my life and in my world. I desire to be close to you and to live forever in an intimate relationship with you. Father, I want for you and you only to rule forever in my life. But that means I have to put away my own desires and my own wants in order for you to be magnified. Give us this day our daily bread. You're the one God who provides everything for me, everything I need. Nothing comes except as a blessing from you, not physical needs nor spiritual necessities. But when I ask for what I need for daily survival, I'm acknowledging that I can't provide those things for myself. I need your help and blessing in obtaining them. And forgive us our debts. More than anything else, I want to be close to you. And I know that in order for that to happen, there cannot be any sin in my life. Please show me the sin that I have unconfessed and help me repent of it. Help me to grieve the sin in my life. And then, Abba, please forgive me of it. Restore unto me a right relationship with you because I can't do it for myself. As we have also forgiven our debtors. You've given me so much forgiveness when I didn't deserve it. I want to do the same for the people around me. I want to live in community with other believers and non-believers alike, but I can only do that when I've forgiven them of the offenses they have against me and I against them, just as you did for me. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, everywhere I turn is temptation to defile myself in the holiness that you want for me. 
Temptation is all around, and I cannot resist it on my own. I need your help. But your will is for me to fight the temptation, so please give me the strength, wisdom, and ability to fight with everything inside of me. And through it all, may you receive the glory for victorious, holy living, because you alone are worthy of it. Amen.